0: It's, it's way better to work harder on identifying people that are naturally, intrinsically motivated and want to work hard and learn. You know, big, big signal there in the human sort of personality dimension is you want to keep learning all the time. If you're like that, probably going to be pretty good. I'm Brian Mose, a farmer living in Florence, South Dakota, and you're listening to the Vance Crow podcast.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know, if you're a close friend of mine, you have a common complaint that when we're meeting new people, I'm going to introduce you in a way that is excited and some might even call hyperbolic. Now, I don't agree with this. If I'm introducing somebody and I'm saying something about them, I believe it's true. And oftentimes the way that I describe it is just a little different than maybe the way they would describe themselves but it often paints an image in other people's minds that I think helps them to understand why I'm so excited or why I've decided to be such close friends with this person. Now, no one has ever lodged that complaint more strongly with me than today's guest, Dr. Eric Ward. I view Eric as one of the most profound scientists in the entire world. I mean, how could I not? The way that I met him was that he invited me to come all the way down to North Carolina and gave me a chance to address several scientific audiences about GMOs and uh, how to push back on propaganda. So anytime somebody gives me a big opportunity, I'm going to feel good about them. But as I've gotten to know Eric over the years, I've come to realize that not only does he have a really amazing scientific mind, his true gift is being able to create the space For other people to be able to invent, to come up with things that no one has seen before, and to really build things that the entire world needs. And there's no better example of that than today's podcast, because we start out this interview with Eric and I taste testing a purple tomato. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know that Eric and I talked about the purple tomato a couple of years ago. And uh, we were talking about how it would be great, you'd have this new um, product that was not designed as a GMO that made it easier for farmers to to grow them, but instead you'd have a product that actually improved the nutritional content of a fruit and you made it so consumers saw a reason why they would want to support GMOs. Well, it's gone from being just an idea or something that was scientifically possible to an actual reality. And in fact, our good friend, Kate Crosby, sent us a small jar of these purple tomatoes that she's helped raise out in California. So Eric and I sit down and we get to taste test the fruits of Kate's labor. And then we get to have a great conversation that ranges not only from science and where uh, things like climate change are headed, but also things that really matter to me. Should we continue to support the university system how did he raise his kids, and what can I do to improve the way I'm thinking about raising my own daughters? I loved this conversation, and I think that it should illustrate for you just why I think Eric is such an amazing person. Although I'm certain right now as he's hearing this, he's really frustrated with me for overhyping it. But as I, you'll see, I think it's all true. At the end of this interview, we decided to do something kind of interesting for the legacy interview project we've been working on. You know that we can't share real legacy interviews that people come to record their private stories. It's just too personal, and we don't want to take that and use it as marketing. So instead, we invited a few special and interesting people to come in and do a short legacy interview that they knew would be public. One of the people that accepted our invitation was a man named Ben Lawler who's a haberdasher here in St. Louis. That's a seller of men's clothes. But Ben isn't just some guy that sells suits. He is one of the most well-respected suit sellers ever. In fact, he created for me the first tailored suit I'd ever owned, and I am forever grateful to that because he showed me just what is really possible. Well, Ben came into the studio, and he told stories about his childhood and his youth that shocked me. And I thought it'd be really fun to put these on at the end of the interview so you can hear how a guy went from being uh, one of a bunch of boys in a small farm town to learning his uh, way around business and trying to uh, pass the obstacles that would get in their way. I'm not going to ruin the surprise, but I can tell you he fights with a rooster named Boss Hog, and it is worth your time. So if you've been curious about what these legacy interviews are all about Then stay till the end of the interview and check out Ben Lawler. Thank you so much to him for uh, sharing his fun stories. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with my man, one of the most prolific ag scientists in the entire world, Dr. Eric Ward. Dr. Eric Ward, welcome back. Thank you so much.
0: I am very appreciative of the opportunity to be here, and it's great to be here in person too. Why does anybody want a purple tomato? Why does anybody want a purple tomato? Well, purple tomatoes are really cool because they've been engineered with a couple of genes that allow them to make the same amounts of purple pigments, the, the really good stuff for you. It's in like a blueberry or eggplant skin or any of the purple vegetables or fruits that you normally eat, like blackberries. Um, These things have been around for a while technologically, uh, but we just now are at the point where we can start to think about commercializing them because we've
1: gotten through the first big regulatory hurdle. So, for anybody that doesn't know, you were on the podcast before we talked about purple tomatoes back when they were like a a gleam in your eye, like this idea that it seemed like regulation was going to come down enough that you could have a GMO for a commercially available product that people would just go to the grocery store and be like, Right. I know what I'm buying. I'm buying a GMO tomato because it's obvious the way that it looks and I want it. Yep. And now that's come true. Yeah. So
0: I'll back up a step or two. Um, Full credit to Kathy Martin, who's a scientist in Norwich, England at the John Innes Center. She's worked in this area for decades. Uh, It started with um, working on understanding the, the biochemical pathways that regulate pigment in flowers. In Snapdragons of all things. And she did a whole bunch of work on that and really got into the genetics of that and understood what all the different functions were. And it turned out um, from work that she did about 15 years ago, you could take two uh, genetic control elements out of Snapdragon, so-called transcription factor genes. She put them into tomato under the control of a promoter. That's a sequence that makes the genes expressed that's specific for the fruit. These couple of transcription factors turn on just in the fruit. And they activate this purple pigment pathway that's in the tomato anyway, but is normally latent. It's not expressed. Like the only time you'd see it typically would be like when you germinate a tomato seedling and you look at that kind of pale part under the two little green cotyledons, you'll see some purple in that hypocotyl. So normally it would be expressed there, but it would never be on in the fruit otherwise. So she basically hotwired the pathway By putting in these two Snapdragon
1: genes, which causes the all the pigment to be made in the in the fruit, which is super cool. I totally did not realize. I because my expectation was that it was like, hey, we found this gene that makes these things have all these antioxidants. Let's put those in there. I, for as much as I've been around this, never understood. No, it's just taking what it already has and allowing it to express it for longer. Correct. And in the right spot at the right
0: time, right? So the whole pathway is there to make these pigments these anthocyanins the purple pigments it's just not active in the fruit normally and you see a bit of it there's a couple varieties on the market now you might have seen some of these they have sort of brownish skin um, and there's even one that's more purplish but when you cut them open they're just red or greenish red in the middle they don't actually ever make purple pigment in the flesh of the fruit the difference here is it's expressed throughout the fruits so they're dark purple
1: all the way through which is super Cool. And so I've been uh, getting loads and loads of uh, articles about the purple tomato just in the last week from you, actually. What's the big thing that's going on right now? Well, we had a, a watershed
0: moment a couple of weeks ago. So if to the extent you want me to get into the wonky details oh, of yeah. the regulatory yeah, process, yeah. I will happily share that. So the USDA historically has regulated the the release of genetically modified crops into the environment, like are they going to be a plant pest or not? That's really the USDA's role. And that goes all the way back to the mid-1990s with the very first GM crops, like the flavor saver tomato from Calgene or the first uh, transgenic corn plants that Monsanto and Novartis and other companies. So the USDA has always had this relatively narrow remit, right? They rule on, is it a plant pest risk or not? There was a arcane detail of the way genetic engineering gets done that caused them to drag a lot of things into that regulatory regime that maybe shouldn't have been there and the arcane detail is the way you put the genes into the plant uses a bacterium called agrobacterium tumefaciens agrobacterium naturally genetically engineers plants. That's its lifestyle. It actually sticks a piece of DNA into the plant all by itself, causes the plant to make a food source for it, the bacterium, and it causes the plant cells to proliferate, like make a so-called crown gall, basically a big knot of tissue. And then the bacteria thrives in that crown gall tumor and eats the stuff that it's engineered the plant to make. So that's pretty slick, right? evolutionary trick. So years and years ago, Mary Dell Chilton here at Washu in St. Louis and uh, groups in, in the Netherlands and in Belgium, and then the guys at Monsanto too figured out that, hey, you could take that mechanism, strip out all that stuff you don't want that the bacterium normally does, and put in your gene of interest. And the, ba- the agrobacterium would take it in for you. And that was done in, in parallel by several of those groups back in the early 80s. Okay, so, so why is this germane to the USDA regulatory regime? Agrobacterium is technically considered a plant pathogen because the crown galls are actually a disease of like grapevines. You see a lot of them in the field, right? So You see them on oak trees too, right? Yeah, that, and those can be caused by insects and other things, but it's a similar idea. Yeah, so... The USDA then interpreted that, well, look, you're taking a piece of a plant pathogen's DNA, and it's ending up in the genetically engineered plant. Therefore, because it has a piece of plant pathogen DNA, it gets pulled into our regulatory regime. We have to consider it as a plant pest risk. And after you know three decades of that technology and realizing that the only piece of agrobacterium that ends up in the genetically modified plant is like. 20 base pairs it's this little sequence that causes it to get guided in it has nothing to do with the pathogenesis process other than it allows the dna to go in they finally have said okay just because it has a few base pairs of agrobacterium dna that doesn't automatically make it a plant pest risk so that was one big watershed thing another was they no longer are gonna require that you do field trials in order to assess plant pest risk. That had become the de facto standard. All the big companies have tremendous resources and infrastructure and people around this. So they would do extensive field trialing of all these varieties, which they have to do anyway to make sure that they're, you know, gonna yield properly for corn and stuff like that. But that then turned into this hurdle for even a tiny little startup company. It's like, oh God, we gotta do all these field trials. The USDA also said unless the field trial is going to shed light on whether it's a plant pest risk, it's not going to be required. So in our case, tomatoes have no wild relatives in the U.S. They don't outcross very well. They pretty much self-pollinate. And moreover, the mechanism, so the mode of action of the trait, has nothing to do with it becoming a plant pest risk that's what the usda decided so there's no reason for us to have to do field trials instead we simply submitted to them all the detailed information about how it was made where the gene is in the genome what it does and then some information about the population genetics of tomatoes and their wild relatives of which there aren't any and so that went through a new process at the usda that they call a regulatory status review and that was announced a little over a year ago uh, in the context of a new regulatory regime they call the secure rule. So the news was we were the very first of these regulatory status review
1: requests that emerged under this new regulatory regime. Seems so, like a libertarian dream, like it never actually happens <laughs> that the government gives up the power that they well, have.
0: Well, you know, I think it's um, it's a testament to... This is an example of government actually working pretty effectively um, where there was a realization that we want, we have a technological lead in this area as a country, period, number one. Number two, we want to see more innovation. So specifically from little tiny companies like Norfolk Plant Sciences, which is the group that's commercializing the purple tomato. moreover, they want to see the technology end up in more crops than just corn soybeans you know canola like giant row crops which are in the economic interest of very large companies that have commercialized them that are not so relevant to like consumer interest right so i think there's a there's a multiple factors that converge here so there was a kind of big review catalyzed by the white house to look at the whole <coughs> regulatory regime i don't remember all the details but out of that emerged the, this Proposal for the Secure Rule a couple of years ago, and then it got announced, and then we submitted a regulatory status review under that, and we were the first one to spit out the other end of the
1: pipe. So Which White House administration was? I the- don't. It, you know, it it
0: might. I think it even started in the tail end of the Obama administration, and then it kind of went on during Trump. You know, this the these agencies aren't. They're, they're typically they're not really run by political appointees, right? These are folks that are career administrators and the people we worked with at at aphis the animal and plant health inspection service which is a group in usda that has purview over transgenic crops those folks are all you know decadal employees and you know super smart scientists really easy to communicate with like very open to new stuff and i think they're it's it's a bit of a dream scenario for them when something comes along it's like Oh, great. Another one from Monsanto, you know, and all they do is read thousands of comments about how Monsanto sucks and roundup kills people, you know, pick your poison. So when something comes along from a tiny little company, that's actually made a really cool consumer facing product. That's kind of like, wow,
1: this is great. To me that like, I used to always talk when I was going out (laughs) and speaking about GMOs on behalf of Monsanto to activist groups is I would always bring up like the look, the, the more regulation that you push for you think you're hurting a place like monsanto but all you're doing is digging a giant moat because they don't care add another year of trials on add 10 more years of trials on because all that does is make it so a little company like norfolk can't do it and then the only way that they're going to see that be commercialized is if they put that thing up for sale and there's only a handful of companies that can buy it so to me what you're describing here is like uh like truly like a, like a monumental It's a movement. big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. The other, there's one other, I'll t- just to, for completeness, there's one other
0: thing that changed under Secure, which is once you've got the gene um, signed off on by USDA, it's technically called, it's deregulated, which means you don't need to get a permit or you don't have to notify anybody when you plant it now. You can plant it like you would plant any other variety. If you were to then take that same gene, that same trait, and put it back into the same species of plant again, just and it just ends up in another spot in the genome, you're, you're pretty much exempted at that point. You've already been deregulated, unless there's something new about the way that gene went in. There used to be a lot of rules around the so-called event-specific stuff, which is where the actual gene went in, and you'd have to go through the whole rigmarole all over again. Even though it was the exact same gene, it just happens you went into a different spot in the genome. So it, it got rationalized, you know, kind of on multiple dimensions, which is, is great. And I think it's exciting for the people at USDA, too, because they want to, you know, they, as much as we can have these weird stereotypes of the way career, you know, bureaucratic administrators are, these people actually want to see innovation come to light. They don't always have the tools in their hands to do it.
1: So, so what then happens for purple tomatoes? Are they like, I remember yeah. when Kevin Folta was doing, um, something with Al Jazeera. I remember they had, okay. he, he was showing him something with strawberries that he had a GMO strawberry. And he said, uh, when he turned his back, one of the cameramen ate it. And uh-huh. he was like, I don't really know what to do here. Cause it's <laughs> totally illegal. <laughs> was it illegal when, you know, right up until that these, well,
0: things- yeah, you, you know, technically you, you're, well, Yes. So when you, when you disseminate seeds uh, and you're, under, you're still under permit, then you can't allow those seeds to just go out willy-nilly anywhere. So that, that has to all be done under permit. So any movement of those guys that we did before then, we had to do under permit, which is the way we handle them. So the, it's, a, it's a frictional cost that gets removed. Now we can basically send the seeds wherever we want. And if you eat one of those and you poop the seeds out, you don't have to worry about the seeds in your poop. And if you've ever been to an activated sludge bed at a uh, wastewater treatment facility, which I would encourage you to do sometime, um, there, you will see tomato plants sprouting all over them because the tomato seeds actually do a pretty good job transiting your gut. And um, they end up, even after going through activated sludging, you'll get volunteer tomatoes growing all over the place. So, so, so we weren't happy about, and in fact, prohibited people from eating these up until we had the USDA permit.
1: Because you legitimately, you could actually throw and those out, and they could hop
0: on a plane, and they'd grow in California because that's where you took your next, you know, number two. So it's it's an issue, right? And it, under the under the permitting rules, you've got to devitalize the field after a trial. So you would you'd steward the field at the end of the season, harvest the crop, all grown under regulation kill everything, disc it all in, spray herbicide on it, monitor it subsequently to make sure there are no volunteers growing. And that's the kind of stuff you have to do, which it's all doable. It's just expensive and it's extra work. So that's why it's so important to to get this deregulated status for us. Now there, there's another dimension, which is FDA, which we haven't talked about at all, um, which is st- we're still waiting on. Um, and FDA, this is an, a bit of arcana around genetically modified plants. The FDA process has always been voluntary. It it started with Calgene back in 1994. They decided they were going to submit to FDA, and FDA then came up with a framework that said we will look at your submission of data about nutritional composition and allergenicity and the like, and we will acknowledge that we have no further questions. That's all you. That's what you get from it. So we submitted a thing called a biotechnology notification file or bnf back about two and a half years ago now um i'm leaning away from the mic here are i'm sorry. yeah keep going so th- this bnf has been in the fda for oh, over two years now and what they do is they want to see data that shows that the tomatoes are basically the same as any other tomato except for these changes that we made um, so they're they're super interested in like, what, what did you put in there? Could it be allergenic? In our case, these transcription factors, these gene regulators are there in such tiny quantities because all they have to do is turn on the genes that make the purple pigment. You don't need hardly any of them. And so they're almost indetectable, it turns out, in the, in the tomato fruit. You got to look really hard for them. It's not like there's some massive amount of some new protein that's been made there. So we're good on the allergenicity. And then you look at total nutritional composition of the fruit, like all the bulk properties, like sugar content, all that kind of stuff, amino acid levels, identical to the other tomatoes. The only thing that's different that you can detect using normal analytical methods is they have a ton more of these anthocyanin pigments. Okay, so that's all good. So then the FDA will say, well, whoa, wait, what if you eat too many anthocyanins? So then you have to do comparisons of like normal dietary exposure to anthocyanins and it turns out if you eat normal quantities of these it's no different from eating normal quantities of blueberries or eggplant or blackberries or whatever so we're not in some weird realm where all of a sudden you're going to get you know a thousand times more of this compound than you would ever get in your diet anyway so we're we're in consultation with them we expect, you know, knock on wood, we'll, we'll hear something positive from them in the next months, maybe even weeks. Um, we've, we've had a regular ongoing discussion with them about what they're looking for. One of their concerns is, it turns out a byproduct of tomato processing is this stuff called pomace, which is basically the skins and the seeds. So when you buy tomato paste, and what do they do with that? Well, they put it in animal feed, go figure, right? It's like, <sighs> You know vegetable matter that's got some protein and calories in it so of course it gets turned into animal feed um so there's a concern that because these are now deregulated and you can grow them anyway some anywhere somebody could turn the pomace from the purple tomatoes into animal feed so then it has to go to the center for veterinary medicine at fda where they will determine whether there's undue exposure to the animals that might eat the stuff now in reality these are not going to be a commodity product right we're not making hunts tomato paste out of these. So um, it's probably a moot point, but for to be to be careful and complete, they still will check for that too. So we've submitted um, arguments to them about the levels of anthocyanins that occur in animal food normally that show that we're not going to cause some undue exposure as a result of these things being...
1: The, least, so. the things you're describing, like all the hurdles, all the government, yeah, like, this is like super boring. No, so I mean it's not people, boring. It's this like, is like I go why? Why would a Joe human Rogan being instead. dedicate their time to getting through the bureaucracy of the government?
0: Well, um being a human being who's spent a little bit of time doing that, I got to say it's not my favorite because it's it does seem like overly careful sometimes. But the reality is, we live in a regulated world, right? I mean, increasingly so. It gets at something you said earlier about the activists not realizing they're feeding into the interests of big companies. It's like, well, this technology has never been tested. How do we know it's not risky? This is like the most regulated agricultural stuff there is. You can breed anything you want. You can wild cross anything you can get to pollinate with anything else. You have no idea what you
1: did. Not you to can- mention the black magic of, uh, of. um oh what are you, grafting yeah like the, yeah, the sure. weird things that can any, come any, out of that whatever you know
0: and that that's completely unregulated right you're mixing like grab bags of jeans so here we're taking we know exactly what we put in here you know exactly where it is we know exactly what it does and so this claim that it's somehow not um highly regulated is just you know it holds no water on the face of it the point being we're not going to proceed extra legally. Let me put it that way. Now, the FDA process is voluntary, right? So we're not required by law to do anything with FDA. We're being good citizens by doing this biotechnology notification file and then awaiting their judgment that we've submitted sufficient evidence that these are no different from any other tomato. Doesn't mean we can't eat them right now, it just, we're doing it at our own risk. But, you know, realistically, you do all kinds of stuff at your own risk all the time. Anyway, including like eating too much ice cream, watching TV, that's extremely risky behavior that's not regulated by the government. So, you know, I I feel completely comfortable guiding people by saying, you can grow these and you can eat them. We're not going to give you any, you know, imprimatur that the FDA says it's okay to do that. But Who cares? You do all kinds of things. The FDA says doesn't rule about already that. That said, we're in, you know, like I say, we're in discussion with them. We respect what they do a lot. We've talked to those folks. We know them. They do a super good, careful job and we're eagerly awaiting their judgment that we've supplied sufficient data to them.
1: So we have some right here. I got a package in the mail the other day and they, there they were the purple tomatoes. It's uh you you believe safe to eat you think if i 100%. eat this is not gonna cause yeah, I me mean, any like if,
0: if, unless you if they're you have a problem
1: with tomatoes normally anyway then i wouldn't eat them but they're so these are like cherry tomato sized yeah and then when we cut them open they're like legit purple like on the outside in fact when i opened up the package i thought they were chestnuts i was like oh wow yeah. that's how dark well the... and you can see there's even purple staining on the paper plate yeah. which is pretty impressive when you look at they're, them from yeah. there yeah like So I like, I actually was looking at it and then I was like, oh gosh, no, these are the tomatoes I was being sent. So I'm going to try one. Sure. And you have eaten a purple tomato before?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, under controlled conditions before,
1: but now, you know, since they, they, so let me. That's super weird. That was super weird because I didn't realize that my looking at it would change, like seeing that it was purple. I wasn't expecting it to taste like a tomato. Oh yeah, but yeah. it does taste right. like it does taste like a blackberry. Right? Yeah, but like yeah. it was like so. Yeah. So you, it was like a little bit like you know when you go to get a glass of water and it ends up being milk and you're like yeah Whoa, sure like
0: no it is interesting isn't it and um yeah I think the so part of the reason I'm involved in this is because I got involved in plant biotechnology way back in grad school, you know, when I was at WashU here in St. Louis in the early 80s. And I think all of us that back in that era were like, this is such cool technology, it's going to have such a big impact on the world and on people's lives and on the climate and the planet. And then it turned into this regulatory CF, right, over time. And during that period of seeing it kind of degenerate into this lowest common denominator frankenfood discussion there was always this well look nobody's ever come up with anything that a consumer actually wants or cares about right it's like you don't if you're going to buy a corn chip it doesn't matter to you if that corn was was tolerant of glyphosate or it was resistant to corn borer it's like all all you're seeing is risk as a consumer it's like it's good for the grower it's good for the company selling the product. You don't see any direct benefit. Here's something where you see a direct benefit. So this is a bit of a holy grail, like consumer-facing, genetically modified organism that people can actually get behind. and that That's the hope, right? And we'll, we shall see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am naturally prone to I – mean, I guess I'm probably high on the openness scale, so I like yeah. novelty. But if I go to the grocery store and all of a sudden they're selling yellow carrots – I really want yellow and purple carrots. Yeah. Like, Cause I'm like, hey, what you know, let's sure. try that out. And I always thought that that would be the same way with with GMOs, but there just wasn't, who, who was gonna take the time to do that? Yeah. And frankly, like when you talk about the return on investment, right? Like selling something directly to consumers in the form of tomatoes, you have to sell a hell of a lot of tomatoes to make whatever genetically engineered yeah. change you've made valuable. Yeah. Whereas if you can find a way to make a crop, you know, resistant to a certain kind of herbicide, like corn, sure. you're affecting like hundreds yeah. of thousands of acres, yeah. you know, tens of millions tens of, millions of yeah. acres. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, I think that's a super good point. And, you know, Monsanto early on had projects going in tomato and potato and multiple crops where they were going to have a positive impact, but at the end of the day you end up having to do the calculation it's an opportunity cost you want to put your incremental dollar into more stuff that's going to help you sell more corn seed or you want to put your incremental dollar into stuff that's going to go into a crop that's you know much smaller particularly if you're just playing on the seed end of the value chain right you're not actually extracting value at the retail point you're just selling tomato seed it's hard to make a living doing that
1: so you're not a marketing guy but you're kind of the ceo of the of the overall project no i
0: gotta give a huge hat tip to a guy named nate Pumplin, based out in davis who's ceo of uh, the commercial operation for the u.s um, who's been with us for about a year now and th- he joined just about when the whole usda landscape was shifting um and he's done a fantastic job he's got a background in it actually advertising originally within plant biotechnology of all things um, and we he, we got together at just the right time he was looking for a new opportunity completely of his own volition he quit a really good gig because he just wanted to do something novel and he wanted to work in an area where there wasn't a super long discovery timeline like most plant biotech it's like here's a dream we can realize the dream it's going to take us eight years this was like done I mean the technology risk is zero this thing is been back crossed, you know, dozens of times, you know, it's completely stable. It's a good trait. It's just a question of now getting it on a commercial path. So that's what Nate's been up to and, you know, not to preempt, he'd be an interesting guy to talk to also, not that you want to spend two whole podcasts on purple tomatoes, but, um, the, the initial plan is try to work through regional growers that are connected to regional grocers particularly in the center of the U S where people have a more visceral understanding of agriculture. It's not a weird thing for them that something would be GM um, also working through farm stands. So direct sales where um, people get, you know, there's a it shortens the value chain and the grower can take it directly to the consuming
1: public. Um, we're also going to, I like the idea of farm stands. Yeah. If, if only, yeah. like, cause I've seen the GMO corn, uh, you know, sure. uh, sweet corn sure. sold there, right? Yeah. So you have some people that are like, "Hey, I'm just growing sweet corn for my farm stand." And if you have a person standing right there explaining what's going on, all of a sudden the person isn't in the grocery store being like, "Yeah, wait a second, should this be cheaper right. because it's a GMO?" Now all of a sudden you're able to explain like, "Hey, you're not going to have worms in this because yeah. it's and, got a you, GMO. and it didn't
0: get sprayed 15 times with yeah.
1: insecticide between anthesis and harvesting,
0: which is what they used to do, right? So so, yeah, that's, that's a super good example. And it, it personalizes it. It also, you know, look, people people are looking for differentiation. Like you said, you know, you see a yellow carrot or a purple carrot or a purple broccoli. It's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I want to buy that. And I think that's true um, across the board, including into retail fresh produce grocery, provided they can get over the kind of pucker factor about the fact that it's GM.
1: You know, I... Uh, This is one of those things that I like my – I always talk about the Peter Thiel paradox. Like what's one thing you believe that other people don't? You know, after I worked for Monsanto on behalf of GMOs, I came to the conclusion that almost no one had a problem with GMOs. Yeah. It was was almost entirely mimetic. Mm, You know, they would hear from somebody else that somebody really didn't like them. And so then they were like, "Eh, if I have a choice between – having them or not having them. I'm going to lean towards not having them, but I don't really know. I don't really care because I had literally thousands of conversations about GMOs and it was so rare mm-hmm. that someone sure. had even more than a modicum of resistance about GMOs that I just think like the activists did a very good job of making the pressure seem a lot higher than it was. But after just a little bit of pushback on the, on the anti-GMO rhetoric, it's gone it's not anywhere you don't see frankenfood we we feel the same way and you
0: know nate points to the the most recent pew charitable trust study which was i don't know three or four years ago which is basically a 50 50 split so which is great so half of the market doesn't care or actually wants them. that's a positive message and i'm with you i think a lot of it is just mimesis it's like well if you're gonna you know why wouldn't you answer no, I don't like them because you already have this weird, you know, sort of like, well, I see all these little pretty logos of the butterfly that says non GMO projects. There must be something to that. So it's, it's pretty easy to say you don't want them.
1: Yeah. And I think it's the same thing as the, you know, when you walk up to somebody and you say, Hey, I'm going to flip a quarter, you know, the heads and you get it. Will you pay, you give me a dollar. And if it's tails, then I'll give you a dollar. People like, no. And you have to bring it like, 10 times (laughs) up you know i'll give you ten dollars you only have to give me one dollar before people do it and it's because we have risk aversion and that's makes sense right like the humans that don't have high risk aversion were the ones that tried things and died and so like it's deeply embedded in you just like do whatever we were doing a moment before even if i didn't know what we were doing a moment before change tells me something's wrong yeah and you know coupled with a healthy dollop of
0: cynical marketing around fear that's what all the NGOs, that's what they sell is fear. And so one of the, they, they latched onto this as something people could
1: be afraid of. Now. When- I also think that those NGOs were actually just really well covered PR firms. Oh, sure. And like, it yeah. was like, I think like sure. people have this sense of like, no, there's a collection of people that were really passionate about something and they went out in this world. Yeah. No, those guys were for hire and they would point at whatever technology you wanted. And the way that they did PR was they, focused on that one aspect of it whether it was sustainable or fairly traded or yeah and then they would just say whatever you're doing that's different than my clients that's the part of it that we're going to point at." yeah
0: i you know i who knows but i see no reason i i have no data that would refute that and at the end of the day the result is what matters not the motivation and that's what they ended up doing right and so i the The other thing I think that's happened is there's a lot more concern about climate change and sustainable production now, for sure, than there was 10 years ago. And if you say, I am gonna make it de facto impossible for you to move genes from one category of organisms into a crop that isn't fertile with that other organism, you're you're removing a huge, huge tool that we've got in altering crop physiology to make it possible to actually make the things more drought tolerant, more able to deal with extreme
1: temperature, you name it, right? I mean, yeah, but we do that with nuclear, right? Like we've taken that off the table and-, and uh, Yeah, it's equally irrational. Probably even, you know, it,
0: yeah, it's crazy, right? It's some level, but that's, it's understandable too. It's this like over interpreting of incremental risk that isn't really an incremental risk. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, Chernobyl, Fukushima, that's all anybody thinks of with nuclear. And it's like, well, yeah, but I grew up, in, you know, I was born in 1960. I grew up, my dad used to travel for business all the time in the 70s. And I don't know if you remember the frequency of airline crashes back then.
1: Well, I wasn't alive back it then. It was but.
0: <laughs> astounding compared really? to
1: what it is now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a major news event when anywhere in the world, a jetliner crashes now. And the U.S. jetliners were crashing at the rate of more than one a year back then in rather spectacular ways. And the result of that has been we have an incredibly safe air transit system now, right? Like all the stuff that could go wrong to a first order approximation has gone wrong and it's all been wrung out of the system. Now, you
1: know, I had so. no idea about that. I mean, my sense about plane crashes or people being afraid of flying on a plane it was just that they're like so irrational because planes never crash but i didn't realize before the 80s they did no, crash. Then in the, you know the
0: post immediately leading up to and immediately after world war ii the first real commercial you know propeller plane travel that was just that, that the the statistics are astonishing there because they'd take off, they wouldn't know what the weather was going to be, where they were going to land. And there was you weren't coming back, you didn't have enough fuel. So you're just going to wing it, literally. There's a great book called Fate is the Hunter by Ernest K. Gann. It's a, he's a, he was a commercial pilot back in those days. It's all about his training and near misses. And the first six or seven pages of that book is fallen
1: colleagues, not from the war. Whoa. Well, that probably explains why there used to be ashtrays on those things, because people were probably so addled with fear they had to be sucking back. (laughs) So you brought up climate change, and uh, I am so deeply resistant to uh, saying something as simple as I believe in climate change, if only because I feel like as soon as I do— now we mm-hmm. value smuggled all these other ideas in that i don't agree with and and really like it it's the diff it's the is ought dilemma right just yeah. because you can say something is yeah. true doesn't tell you what you ought to do about it mm-hmm. so let's start from there mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. climate change mm-hmm. happening
0: well i'm i'm i would never claim to be an expert okay for starters that's probably good like if Nassim taleb is hovering over you, he's like good you're not an expert then you can actually figure out what's going on. Um, You know, look, I think what's happened is it's become convenient to identify short-term fluctuation to equate that with longer-term trends, right? So I think back to Hurricane Katrina in 2006, and there were every pundit was saying, this is the start of the new mega hurricanes we're going to have these every year they're all going to be cat (coughs) five didn't happen okay so so but that that's a there's one sort of bin you can put that in it's really super freaking hot here right now and it's the middle of september okay who knows is that fluctuation yeah i mean over time statistically temperatures are shifting higher i think it's reasonable now to say there's there's a very high likelihood that anthropogenic CO2 generation is correlated with that and probably has a causal effect. I think that's hard to debate against right now. What I, what I don't like is then, okay, so what do we do about it? We now completely change the economy to try to mitigate the burning of fossil fuels in order to keep the temperatures lower. Um, nobody really knows how that's going to work. Nobody has been able, that requires coordinated global action of a sort that we have never experienced. Um, you know, the closest we've gotten to it is probably like World War II. And that was not a coordinated global action. That was very much us and them. Um,
1: so yeah, I we can't do coordinated uh, action on things that are irrefutably you know, yeah. like a po- net positive for everyone. I like, think that, you know, not everyone o- has electricity.
0: Yeah, the CFC thing for the ozone hole is the best example that people point to. Where, the- But that was a case where there was a pretty rel- well-researched alternative that had incremental costs, but it was going to work. Very had a solution, effectively. This is like, okay, you want to actually decarbonize and move away from liquid fossil fuel for, like, transportation and everything else. Like we don't actually have a solution for that. You know, you know, this guy, Vaclav Smil, do you read any of this stuff? So he, he's like Bill Gates, favorite author, I think. So he's written a whole series of books about the energy economy and how, what actually runs the world. His latest one is called how the world works. And this guy basically says all of these gestures that are being made are just that. And, you know, it's effectively ends up being virtue signaling. Now it's great. It's an incremental, you know, I got a, my wife, lovely wife, Gertie, bought me a RAV4 Prime for my birthday back in December. It's a plug-in hybrid so I can run it on electric for all my commuting to and from work. And I feel kind of good about that. And it's about half the price of gas. You know, I plug the thing in overnight. It cost me a buck fifty to put 45 miles worth of electric power into it. But I'm, it's, not, it's not moving the needle, you know. And It just isn't going to work. If you look at the number of coal-burning power plants in China, if you look at the amount of fossil fuel you have to burn to make stuff like concrete or steel, like there's not good alternatives to that.
1: So it's. Yeah. And like, and to push people to not be able to use the options that are the incremental options to generate electricity to me, like borders on evil, right? Like if you define evil as the, the, addition of suffering where it doesn't need to exist. You're talking about people like when I lived in Kenya 15 years ago, in order to be able to have light bulbs on in your house, if your solar panels, if you didn't have enough money to to front for solar panels, which is pretty rare, you had to take a car battery to the center of Mm. the little village Mm. where there was somebody running a generator to plug that car battery in and bring it back. And those kids are trying to read, do their math, do all this stuff. With light bulbs that are par- powered by car batteries to tell them that they're not allowed to have a coal burning power plant because we want to manage the the yeah. environment yeah. but yet not swooping in and finding some other alternative to the energy like I don't know like who are you to to, to interfere with that level of progress
0: yeah, and similar analogy to that would be, oh well, we're not going to let Africa have a green revolution like you saw in India because you got to make all this. Haber hey, bosch nitrogen to have fertilizer to have good enough yield for the crops so it's like okay great well let them starve is effectively what you're saying when you do that right which is yeah i'm with you i think it's a it's a real moral issue where it's like the ultimate sort of it's it's almost it's like a version of nimbyism almost it's like as long as i can feel good about my shit and I got my Prius, and I don't use plastic water bottles, that's all great. And meanwhile, there's, you know, 800 million people that don't know where their next meal's coming from, and they're not going to get to benefit from technological progress. I, I guess I'm enough of a long-term optimist about technology that I don't, it doesn't feel to me, and admittedly is this feeling, I don't have any, you know, it's predicting the future, so there's no real basis for doing it we're going to get out of whatever issue we've created by putting so much CO2 in the atmosphere. There's no question we will. It's, it could take a hell of a long time. A bunch of bad things might happen, but those are going to be bad things that are trade-offs against good things. And, you know, they're trying to save every... I mean, it pains me to say this because I'm a, like, nature lover and, you know, 1st wild bird watcher and all that. But, yes, a bunch of species are probably going to go extinct.
1: But, you know, so you think the the danger of climate change is so present as to be like, already things are dying as a result or yeah, I think there's decent evidence of that.
0: Let me put it that way. I've, I've really come around to it over the last couple of years. Um, I, I'm, I'm in your camp pretty firmly. I don't like subscribing to the belief because I feel it, it bins me in a tribe that I'm not a part of. And this whole, like, trust the science thing that, that people say, like, this is the most arcane, difficult to model problem that anybody's dealing with. Like, literally, the, you, the models are incredibly complicated to a level where I could never understand them. They're only as good as the inputs that go into them. And I know that how hard it is to model stuff, you know, from very limited exposure I've had to it, like in biology, it even pretty... Simple systems take years and years of work and typically have to be backed up by experimental manipulation to say like, okay, I've got a model now so I can genetically take this gene out and see what happens. Does the model
1: support that or not? You can't do that with the climate. Well, and like the perfect example is uh, people maybe if you're in farming, you definitely know about dicamba, but if you're outside of it, you maybe heard like, hey, there was this chemical that farmers were spraying on their crops and it would like. Volatize and lift off and go hit some other farmer. Mm -hmm. And if that one had didn't make his crops dicamba tolerant, then they just they're just blam blasted, right? right? Well, one of the reasons that their models were so bad was that they were using the United States as a huge amount of wind data, Mm -hmm. right? And like Mm -hmm. what is the wind speed? And you needed to do you needed to put dicamba down when the wind speed was between like five miles an hour to seven and a half or ten, it wasn't zero, they didn't want it dead calm. (laughs) And what they found out was after all this stuff had volatized and moved on um, was it turns out the difference of wind speed at the ground level versus where all the, the wind speed was being monitored so that it wouldn't be interfered with by having trees and buildings in front of it is really different. And so when you put it into a live environment, you're like, hey, it's supposed to be five mile an hour winds right now okay for me to go put this on it turns out it wasn't that and so like to your point about the inputs like there's so much stuff where it's easy to be like we know that this data is right because look how much of it we have and it was just a matter of whether or not that that uh, thing monitoring the wind speed was five feet further off the ground than it should have been yeah
0: and we the the granularity of the data in the case of this climate stuff is like extremely coarse grain right like i think yeah it's probably you know maybe we have enough computing power now if you like took measurements every 10 square meters all over the whole planet you could figure some stuff out but it's not, not even close to that right and again i'm like out of my depth i just know it's a super complicated problem it's very hard to model and you know i i don't think that there's any real disagreement now that there has been some impact of anthropogenic co2 on the climate That's like Hard to believe that it wouldn't be true. The question is, where's that taking us, and what are we going to do about it? And I'm I'm not a fan of putting the brakes on the global economy to try to fix that right now. I think, like you say, it's a moral issue among other things.
1: And you know, the best thing we can do for the long term future
0: of humanity is grow the economy.
1: So, speaking of growing the economy, that happens when people start new businesses that are that are innovative and different. And your company. Um, does something really different, right? Normally people that are going out and spraying their crops to protect them from fungus and, and uh, insects are going out there and spraying synthetic things or some naturally derived, but put into mass production. What are you guys doing that's different?
0: So yeah, this is, I'll, I'll shift gears here. So that was Norfolk Plant Sciences, Purple Tomatoes, passion project. Um, I, I, my day job is with a company called Ag Biome. Where we discover microbes that have useful properties, so naturally occurring microbes. And the market that we've gone into most intensely has been crop protection, where there's a real need for new solutions to control diseases, insects, weeds, nematodes. Um, the big chemical companies that have, have historically done that really well have not discovered any real new modes of action, so genuinely new ways of controlling those pests
1: in over. Which is exactly why we're talking about dicamba, which was invented in the 70s. And the only innovation was now we've made some of the plants tolerant to dicamba, not that we've changed how dicamba works. That's exactly right. Yeah, the innovation has all been, the innovation has been reformulating
0: existing active ingredients, making new combinations of them, engineering plants so they become tolerant to them, etc. So no actual new molecules coming. Um, so what do you do about that? Well, it turns out that microbial world is this enormous source of biological activity. So microbes have been around since the dawn of the earth being habitable by life, and they were among the first life forms were primitive microbes. So they've been around for three and a half billion years, round numbers, and have been kind of fighting it out with each other in whatever environment that whole time. And uh, a really useful byproduct of that fighting each other is they they've come up with cool molecules that have evolved that allow them to interact with one another and do important things to one another and some of those it turns out have really potent properties um, to that that are relevant to, to agriculture so we've got two products on the market now they're both naturally occurring bacteria one's called howler the other one's called Thea. they're two completely different taxa of bacteria but they each in their own way make a combination of pretty potent fungicidal compounds and they they basically act as like pathogens of the fungus that's trying to grow on the crop so there there's a huge additional amount of microbial diversity out there we've barely scratched the surface of it we've got about a hundred thousand proprietary strains in our collection. Where we know all the genetic information about every one of them we're continuing to add to that all the time there's way way more stuff out there to get and what we're trying to get into now with some success now is um working in other industries than crop protection where a microbial process could substitute for a chemical process a more traditional one that's based on some you know petroleum derivative or the like and that's a super cool new area um, that's starting to get some traction from the incumbent players in those industries where they've got, you know, decades old processes that work great and fully depreciated plants that run just fine. But there, they see kind of the light at the end of the tunnel that, Hey, there may be a better way to do this. It's more biologically based. It's going to be more sustainable. It's going to have a lower carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera.
1: What, what does it look like if that actually works? How does that go?
0: Well, simple example would be like you use a
1: a bacterium to extract
0: some mineral from stuff that you mine rather than putting it through some chemical process it's very energy intensive and creates a lot of waste
1: so if there was sulfur or something in natural gas and you found out hey we could actually instead of running it through all this chemical and these reactions we could put a microbe on it and that eats the sulfur
0: yeah and we're working with we've got a Published deal with wl gore where they make um all kinds of interesting membranes you know the cortex guys and they're they're very interested in in basically revolutionizing how fermentation gets done so like adhering a bacterium to a solid substrate so that you could flow stuff over it and the bacteria would be uh, exuding stuff that would cause some chemical transformation in what you're flowing over it right you can imagine no tell me what those would be well so for instance if uh, a chemical reaction you would typically catalyze with some sort of like organometallic catalyst like you and you would react it in some vessel okay well how about if you have a bacterium that has an enzyme that's going to catalyze that reaction instead and now you've got a a reactor that you can flow the substrate through and the product you want comes out the other end and that 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 has like literally limitless applications now the trick is finding the microbe that does the stuff you want it to do and that's what we're really focused super hard on now is identifying what environment we need to go into to find such a microbe what would the genetic signatures of that microbe be in the case that it did do that stuff we wanted and then developing
1: an actual laboratory
0: screen to look for that property um, so that we
1: how do you decide which of the things you could do? Cause I mean, you're really talking about really imaginative things, right? Yeah. So you like, if the sky is the limit on, on, you know, what you can imagine, how do you choose yeah, which ones to channel?
0: So we, you know, part of, so part of it is doing as broad up like landscape surveys you can, and then pretty quickly trying to identify things that are technically tractable in some reasonable time frame, Like, not, we got to put 20 people on it for 10 years to figure it out. Like, if we went hard at this for a couple months, we would get a signal that would say, hey, it looks like this could work. And then, you know, in an industry where there's a pain point that we think uh, a biological process could help with, and the industry has at least one player that's willing to plunk down some money to see that happen. Because, you know, you, you, I'm sure you can think of all kinds of examples of industries that absolutely would be ripe for having some sort of technological disruption to happen
1: but they're not gonna they're not gonna promote it yeah that's right that's like the uh if you could create an algae that produces petroleum right you can't imagine exxon being real excited about that
0: that's a really interesting case because if you remember back to the mid 2000s there were a bunch of Plant biotech companies were focused on bioenergy of various sorts, including making it from algae, you know, that made oil bodies and stuff. All that stuff tanked basically when fracking started to come in big. And all of a sudden, fossil fuels are dirt cheap, and the US is a net exporter, and it just was a market problem. So that's getting rebooted a little bit now with the energy prices spiking up over the last few months. I realize they're correcting, but People can see, hey, you know, this isn't all happy, happy if a major supplier like, you know, Russia gets into some issue where it's going to be harder to get their get our hands on their energy in some part of the world. Maybe we do need to start to work on that stuff. So I think there's there's a niche group of investors that are more interested in kind of long term sustainability than they are in immediate financial return and that's going to help fuel some of that stuff too which i you know it's it's a good idea to have those technologies around that's different from we should have some massive government program that penalizes the existing ways and and subsidizes new ways you know that's a whole other discussion but having access to the technologies i think is great and so it's encouraging that there's stuff out there already and we'll see more of that and so we're that we're trying to fuel that fire too in areas that may be
1: Um, I would think that the having people work on a project looking for signal over a couple of months, that's probably a lot better than the, you know, 10 year, just keep going blindly. What's the balance? Like, how much do you keep people like up late at night working on their experiments versus like, hey, have work life balance and be relaxed and yeah. People that work hard on
0: this stuff do it out of intrinsic motivation. So if they believe in it and they think it's cool, they'll work hard on it. We've, we've never been like, a you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves kind of company. And, you know, with good and bad, right, I think they're short term. You can get a lot of productivity out of people like that, but it's not sustainable and it's no fun. And I, I, I'm bad at it, too. So never really gone at it like that. It's it's way better to work harder on identifying people that are naturally intrinsically motivated and want to work hard and learn. You know, big big signal there in the human sort of personality dimension is you want to keep learning all the time. If you're like that, probably gonna be
1: pretty good. Has it been hard for you to keep learning as you've like gotten older?
0: takes more intentional effort let me put it that way uh because you can for sure get into a pattern where it's like a lot of like the big life questions you think you have sort of a framework that works pretty well and it can be tempting to be like that framework works for me it gets to what you said earlier like this risk aversion thing it's a flavor of that like I've got a paradigm that works for me so I'm just gonna you know we're gonna start to put iron all around that right so i actually done a couple things to try to intentionally break myself out of that because i don't like feeling that way and i can't say i've got like the problem solved but one thing i've kind of learned this from you actually is like everybody you meet knows something knows more about something than you do and so it's fun to try to figure out what that sounds
1: Yeah. And I used to think that was like this, like ethereal thing, right? Like, Oh, maybe if you dig down deep enough, it's like right there on the surface. Like you, you can find it real fast, whether it's your Uber driver, your security person, like it's right there. And like, it's probably miles deep, right? There's a whole vein that you can go into.
0: So that's, I try to do that, you know, but yeah, there's other people that are way better at it. You're like the master at that stuff. (laughs) No, seriously. But that, so that's helped. and then I joined a group. There's this thing called EO. Um, it's the entrepreneurs organization, but it just goes by EO now. And my dear friend and close colleague Scott Eunus got me into this a few years ago because he had joined it previously. and that has a, it's a the core of that is a thing called Forum, which is a group of like six to nine people that you meet with once a month and you do you share the it's a five percent share. It's the stuff that you don't talk to anybody else about. Although I got to say in our group, our folks are so open. It's hard for us to find the 5% because pretty much all of us talk to everybody about everything. But I'm the oldest person in that group. And I I intentionally joined that organization to interact with people that were, you know, two or three decades younger than me, different point in their careers, Um, because I want stuff. It's not so I can sit there and be the wise elder and tell them what do in fact the whole organization shies away from direct advice giving they practice this method that's has experience sharing so all you do is like try to align an experience that has a similar emotional tenor to what that person might be going through and you tell them about that and then they draw their own conclusions from it and you draw your own conclusions from theirs and that's been super cool because you know it's like people i would never have met otherwise they're in completely different business areas they're all like you know you'd think it's a Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. If they're in Raleigh, I'm never going to meet them, man. That's like 35 minute drive away, right? So it's it's been really fun. Or, or like the you know the folks in you know the the network that you've got. It's been great for me to meet a bunch of those guys too. They're they're super interesting. A bunch of them are way younger than me. They do all kinds of cool stuff um, that I just probably would never have run into them otherwise. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that was weird for me, you turn 40 and I remember I was actually just going back and reading a biography I wrote last year. Every year I like write up this biography. I have a group of friends. You're in that group of friends. We share it. And, uh, I I realized last year was the first time I I ever wrote down that I felt like I was getting older. Mm. And, you know, people have that experience of, I look in the mirror and I see an older person, but I don't feel older. Right. Like I'm just, and, and, uh, I think that's very true for me. And one of the things that I notice when I look at my journal is how much more resistance I have to, uh, yeah, trying things that are outside of my capacity that I'm good at. And it's not because I'm like afraid I'll fail. It's just that like, ah, these other things, I know if I hit that button, then the pellet drops out and I get the thing I want. Whereas I could go over here and hit that button a bunch of times. And no pellet comes out.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a. I think that's a pretty deep point, point. And it gets at all this, um, like, okay, self-improvement journey, right? Like, I'm I'm all about, like, trying to be a better person and trying to learn more and interface with the world more productively and understand the world better. But there's this fine line between do you, how much do you want to, like, stick to your strengths, which you know pretty well, and how much do you want to work on the stuff that you basically either have admitted to yourself, you're never going to really want to get that much better at, or, you know, that if to the extent that it's like a five-factor thing, you're probably just really good at it.
1: Well, and parenting puts you in this weird situation because you really only get to be a parent of that two-year-old for that moment when she's two. Now you might get another one coming through and you get to do a better job, but you're still moving forward. And, uh, my brother actually, Dan posed this thing, this question to me the other day, and it was like very shaking for me. It was, he said, you know, one in, have you ever thought about how your parenting style is designed absent of, I'm going to try and do what my parents do, or I'm going to try not to do what my parents did. Right? Like, so if you take those two options off the table for how you're becoming a parent, now, how are you defining what you are as a parent? And I was like, Oh, shit, actually, I really was defining so much about what I wanted to be as a parent, as those two things. But that really is limiting. Yeah. uh, The
0: The only, I'm just thinking back to, so my, my twin son,
1: Wow! Yeah, congratulations. And, and my baby daughter, who's back
0: actually in Durham right now, um, for for another day. She's twenty five and a half. So you know, i I'm, I'm way through all that stuff, but I'm trying to think back to what I can relate to what you just said. I think the only thing Gertie and I did that was different from that was there were a few books that we read that were pretty seminal, and the one that really stands out to me is this one called to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. And it's by I don't remember the names of the authors, it's two female psychologists who were acolytes of a guy named Haim gino G-I-N-O-T-T, who used to, I think he wrote a newspaper column when I was growing up, even, you know, about like parenting. And uh there are some really simple techniques in there. Like if you're pissed off that your kid won't put his towel on the Towel bar in the bathroom after showering. This is like when they're 11 years old or whatever. You can be the, you know, the person who's hectoring your kid all the time, and just turn yourself into an asshole, or you can make a sign that says, "Put towel on towel bar after showering," and stick it to the wall. And you know, you know this. You have more of a like public relations marketing. That the power of the written word, right? It's like it's very hard to disobey. wow or like when they you know it's a lot of it's just like simple empathetic listening skills right getting them drawing them out in a way that they will say stuff to you instead of just like you know peppering them with a bunch of shit they don't want to answer you know like well how was your day today oh fine well, here's what my day was like. And then boom, 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 go through three or four really specific things. And usually somebody will respond similarly when you do that, right? You sort of put yourself out there a little bit instead of just, you know, how come you'll never talk to, to me? And them, you know?
1: Yeah. And then you're in a fight and you're not in like the movement forward. And
0: then, you know, the little tiny kid stuff. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we just had like a weird attitude toward it. I think it was a lot like how you look at yours. Like whatever they're doing, they're not doing it out with limited exceptions, they're not doing it to like mess with
1: you. Yeah. And it's when important. they do, it's kind of fun, right? right? When they do figure out how to mess yeah. with you. You're like, Ooh, that was clever. Tell a story. <laughs> Is a former
0: colleague of mine, uh, also a mentor of, of Scott Eugness as who I mentioned before Fred mines. He was a professor at the university of Illinois. And then he went to the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel, which was owned by my former employer, so I got to know Fred quite well from business travel over there. And then Gertie and I went and lived in Basel for a year and a half. And Fred and his wife, Marita, had us over for dinner shortly after we moved to Basel. And our sons, the, the, about to turn 30, were like two years and one month old at that point. You know what that's like, right? So we go to their house for dinner, and they last at the table for like you know 4.2 minutes, and then they're off running around the house. And the light switches in Switzerland are Completely different from the ones in the U.S. You know, they're like a push button instead of a flippy thing, the standard one. And so, of course, they're like fascinated by this, and so they're like turning the lights on and off like, <laughs> a million times, right? And I'm getting ready to blow, like after no, you can't do that. And Fred's just sitting there with this beatific smile, and he looks at me. He goes, "This is such a wonderful age." And it's just like immediately, whoom, you know, just melted everything. Right. Like appreciate what's going on. And, uh, it, that was super powerful moment. For me.
1: Yeah. So
0: Cause that it's like one of those, like, this is, you're not going to, this isn't going to be like that forever. Right.
1: Yeah. It's an, it's an awareness of, of the moment that I think like, yeah. so the other day Violet needed to, to get some eye drops. And so like, after she did it the first time, she realized this actually hurts. I don't, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And the experience of watching a little girl overcome her fear, because I'm not going to hold her down and like pry open her eyes. Mm -hmm. So like I committed to like, if it takes us a half hour to do this, then I'm going to, I'm going to take a half hour to do this. Right. But like, it is a profound experience to watch a child be brave. Right. So she's like, literally her arms are shaking And then what we've worked on is like put one hand here and then put another hand here and then take a big breath and then close your eyes and then dad will go as fast as he can. And to watch her because I can't do anything for her other than talk her down that path to watch a human being master themselves is like if only I could do what you're doing right now on the things that are as hard for me as this is yeah, for her. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you, you could do anything. It was like a really yeah, profound that's, experience. That's cool. Cause yeah, the alternative is, you know, Hey,
0: Anna, you hold her arms down. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not cool. I mean, yeah. Right. It gets the job done, but the kid doesn't learn anything from it other than, you know, you're, you're probably not a hundred percent to be trusted
1: yeah and i mean like i violet and i have such a good relationship because her personality is so similar to mine like i can already just oh, see cool. some but the number two that we have um autumn is you can already tell she's much quieter she's just kind of watching things you know and her personality may change as she gets older but it's just it'll be interesting to see me interacting with a child that's not like me
0: well I, I, you mentioned that because we we tell a story about our sons going to the ophthalmologist because they had pretty bad eyesight early on and getting the drops for the dilation and like literally being held down by a nurse and the other it's a torture it's a torture so not everybody experiences it the same way. Violet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, admittedly that was an external agent. So it's all good. They just got afraid of big nerves instead of
1: us. Violet definitely had a bad experience with the doctor early on. And that makes her like, you can tell what happens when a child doesn't trust somebody anymore. And it's like, that's another weird thing to see where you're like, yep. you know, normally this gregarious little child is like, yeah, I don't like you. I'm going to go hide from you. Weird. Yeah. No, very cool. Yeah. So changing away from um, parents, but you're parenting, but you have two sons that have just uh, they've got advanced degrees. You're hiring young people that have advanced degrees right now. I think there's a huge amount of uh, talk about how the university system is broken. It's producing all these ideologues. And, you know, is the university system broken in your opinion?
0: Well, it's multiple components to that answer. I think there's pretty good um, arguments now that the scientific funding system could use a shaking up. And you saw this thing the White House came out with a couple of weeks ago, which I think is a step in the right direction. (coughs) There's definitely a rich get richer phenomenon in science funding and coupled with a incentive to basically do not the riskiest stuff, right? Do, you know, keep stay in the, the, the hole you're digging already that's working pretty well. There's that, that effect exists for sure. And there's people that have been really strong beneficiaries of that. But if you look at the things that are like the really big breakthroughs, um, all that stuff comes from some weird fringe thing that wasn't planned out. So I, I would be delighted if there was more randomness in that you know, like Tyler Cowen would call it higher variance stuff, like, you know, and I think some of the agencies have gone to this, like go to a a first level cut, like, okay, all these grants are good enough. We can only fund one twentieth of them. So let's just start pulling numbers out of a hat and fund those instead of try to hone it down, 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 down. And then it turns into, you know, you're going to give money to the people that you're 99% sure are going to, get a really good publication out of it, which are the ones that are already doing pretty well. And then it's probably going to be incremental in that super impact.
1: So yeah. The, I don't, Did you read the Safety Nomadist book, The either the Bitcoin standard or the fiat standard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, in the fiat standard, talks a lot about this, about how one of the consequences of the government being so deeply involved in funding of the university system is now all of a sudden you have, like accepted ways of thinking you know it's it's unlikely that the government is going to fund some kind of they're not going to fund economists yeah. that are going to be like you know what this keynesian system is uh not working and we should blow it up the fed doesn't work right so you end up producing more of the people that already believe the thing that is accepted sure. and then and then because you have the government money which is almost limitless then you can really supercharge the problems in the university system rather quickly.
0: Yeah, I, I think.
1: Yeah, I have no no dispute with that line
0: of reasoning. The other one I think that's pretty interesting, if you followed any of Brian Kaplan's stuff, he's made the argument that the real value of higher education is a signaling thing. Like If you look at the stats of earning power of people that, have three and a half years of college versus people that have four years in a degree, the people that have four years in a degree are statistically paid more than the people with three and a half years. It's not because they learned anymore. It's because they got the seal of approval. So the whole thing is about signaling. And, um, you know, that's, I think it'll be really cool to see what the world is like, like when your kids are college age, because you can see how fast stuff is changing.
1: Well, it's already happening now, you know, uh, my business partner, Ben dropped out of college and has done really well. You know, he's now working on papers with Michael Levin and talks with, you know, great other scientists that want to work with him. So he found a path, but even our, our producer here, right? Like he was like, Hey, college isn't going to work for me. I don't want to take on all that, all that debt. So he didn't. And he started, you know, doing production. And now when I meet somebody that doesn't have a college degree, it doesn't feel like, Oh, you're kind of a. You, you didn't you were you weren't able to hack it
0: right 100% And the stats of the completion of four year degree
1: programs is pitiful yeah it's less than 50% after 6 years
0: yeah. and it's uh and you know those people are taking on debt and that is it's again it's almost a moral issue right like what are we doing as a society that says that in order for you to be regarded as a serious person and have any sort of career that matters you must get a four-year college degree. It's like kind of messed up on some basic level, but there's a lot of political pressure toward that, right? That's kind of a, it's been a, a, I think both parties have pushed the, you know, everyone should go to college thing, not just opportunity, but, you know, we're going to make it really easy for you to do that. And that creates all sorts of weird insanity.
1: Oh, yeah. And once you made it so that you couldn't declare bankruptcy on your student loan debt, you have inevitably created a bubble. There's no way around it. That is the market. You know, that's just the way that it is. You know, one of the things that I think we didn't see, regardless of whatever you think about the $10,000 to people with student loans, one of the things I've really thought a lot about is if you have to recapitalize a company not because, hey, we've got all our money working in great places, but because the money ran out, you know, like then you may recapitalize the company to keep it going, but then you do a key thing. You get rid of management and you get new management, right? Like that's the way that it works. Yeah, like chapter 11 would typically bring in, you know. Yeah we're, we're, yeah, we're chopping off the top. Yeah. Like clearly whoever did this yeah. screwed something up. Right. That to me should have been the requirement of people getting um, money to off of their student loans. So if you were going to schools, X, Y, Z, your president and the layers below that are all taken out and you've got to hire new people that are going to come in and, uh, they will be summarily axed if we get back to the same debt level that we're at. Because if you don't, then we should definitely get rid of, you can't declare bankruptcy on your student loans. It should be really easy. So that way people start then having really taking a look at it. But then if you end up having to pay your students off, you should have to cut off the top of the management of the school because that way they have skin in the game.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of skin in the game,
1: not just for that, but you know, banks
0: and all the other stuff too. I, a lot of people have written pretty eloquently about that. It's uh, it's always trouble when you completely decouple any of the risk from,
1: from the people that are making the decisions, right? Not a good plan. <laughs> And so if your kids were 20, you know, and 18 years old again, and they were thinking about science degrees, you'd say, keep doing the same thing you're doing. If
0: you're, you know, it depends on the kid, right? If they're, if they're, if they can succeed in
1: that system
0: then, and they like it and they're getting positive feedback from it. And so it, I think, you know, I don't, I won't go too deep on like my personal history with our family, but I think and you're you're seeing this with yours now too, you basically learn how to learn on your own. Like anything you're going to really get good at, you're going to pick up in the home environment. School is about taking time off the parents' hands and socialization. And, you know, yes, there's book knowledge, and yes, you will meet one or two, or if you're really lucky, four or five people that impact your life in a significant way as, you know, as teachers. I was lucky. I had some teachers I really vibed with and learned a lot from but most of the stuff i learned from them i would argue i learned like outside the formal lecture environment you know it's more like how they behaved and the way they treated people and the way they prepared for what they did and that kind of stuff um so point being if you're if you can if you go into that environment and you like it and you're good at then there's nothing wrong with that but it doesn't mean that's what everybody has to do and if you're not you're a failure that's what's really screwed up it's like it's such a narrow pipe to put people in that and some people just aren't going to be suited to it and they they they're they're great at all kinds of other stuff you know it should be i mean it's a it's a truism now but you know zuckerberg gates the guy that just sold this company for 20 billion to adobe he was a teal dropout you know all these guys are like school's not for me
1: yeah. And there has to be something to the innovation that comes from a person that wouldn't put up with the bullshit that you have to, to say, get a PhD, right? If you're like, no, this is, my life just isn't worth giving up three years. Maybe you're also the type of person that can see through the current paradigms to find a new one.
0: percent. You know, you know, I think in the hard sciences,
1: it's still a really good training
0: system um, for, again, for people that access the value of it. That's a great way to really get steeped super deep in something, and it forces you to, like, become the world expert in that really narrow thing, right? That moment in time, you know more about that stuff than anybody else, and you're really good at it, and you develop an ability to, like, go really deep in an area that other people just aren't going to have. But there's plenty of other people that they sort of surf through it. And depending on the school, they can get out with the credential and they
1: didn't really do the work very well. You know, I mean, every every place is different.
0: Right. So it's hard to generalize.
1: So uh, we're going to wrap up. But before yeah, I do, what is yeah. uh, when was the last time you laughed really hard? Wow. There was something I was reading or
0: watching recently and it's going to escape me because i'd probably had about two or three drinks and i can't come up with it but i do wow well actually i shouldn't say that i uh not to put him on the spot i won't talk about what we were discussing but jim carrington who runs the danforth center who I've known for a long time, I spoke with him on the phone this morning because we were prepping for this meeting that's coming up tomorrow. I wanted to find out, you know, what what do we want to focus on? Is there anything to lock out for? And he invariably, every time I talk to that guy, I make him laugh and he makes me laugh. It's just like that's built in. He's got a super dry sense of humor. And um,
1: I, 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 I'm i not gonna relate any specifics, but
0: we laughed pretty hard this morning.
1: Well, I, uh, I, I think that that's been one of those questions that I found recently that really opens people up. I ask him at the end of the legacy interviews, right? You've just done this really heavy thing. Then you ask people like, when did you laugh really hard? And, and I think this is like, I'm going to ask it more on the podcast. Cause I hope other people ask, like, it's a great way to open people up.
0: Good one. Oh, and I'm going to think about that now too. The next time I laugh really hard, I will remember what it was and like, write it down because you know, there definitely stuff hits me. And I, I, One of the things I like working with about working with a bunch of other people is it's it's I I get positive feedback from making people laugh. It's not necessarily the best quality in like a leader. It has its limited utility. And I I probably overstep more often than I should because I I have a I've sworn a pact with myself not to be sarcastic in front of large groups of people, because even though I know like 30 percent of the people are side splitting. There's about another half are like, wait, was he serious? And then there's like 10% that are like, he was serious. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> not really hard not to do it. It's difficult because it's learned behavior.
1: And, it, you know, some people
0: say sarcasm is bad, like under all circumstances. But I It's the it's
1: ignorant way. man's wit, right? Or it can be, yeah. right? But
0: it also can be like, a, it's a way, if you have a bond with somebody that you feel is pretty tight, it's a way to, to share stuff. Right in a way that you know is not meant in any sort of mean-spirited way, but it, but that's it's got to be used in a narrow way.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think it's good to be aware of when you're laughing, you know, like because it's like uh, Barry Flinchbaugh, who's this uh, famous professor at K-State University. He and I gave talks at a couple of the same places, and he used to always tell me if people are laughing, their minds are open. Yeah. And that really made me much more aware when I'm watching a speaker, mm-hmm. how often they get people to laugh because you get people to laugh and then you can mm-hmm. slot in some ideas and then you can keep going. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's like a a sense of um, being present, right? If you're aware, I'm laughing, I'm feeling joy. It's like, you know, it's it's the, the reason to be alive, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well well, Eric Ward, thank you so much for uh, coming by, sharing the purple tomatoes from our friend Kate, and uh, and making this happen. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me. <laughs>
2: My first job was uh, the chickens, right? So starting out in third grade, I'll never forget going out to the, uh, the chicken coop, right? So there was probably 50 to 60 hens at any given time, but <laughs> one rooster. So the rooster in particular that I can remember, his name was Boss Hog, right? And he was mean. Right? Whenever I would get into the coop, that was his territory, right? So he was very protective of these hens. So as a young boy, you know, probably seven or eight at the time, I would come in there and I needed something to carry all these eggs because if you could imagine, I would get 40 to 50 eggs at a given time. So I would get a lid, you know, from one of these big trash cans, flip it over. And whenever I would go in, that's how I would fend off Boss Hog, you know, push him to the side. And then I would get in the chicken coop, bring that lever over, and I could hear Boss Hog, you know, just pecking on the door because right? it's like, what's this guy doing in my, he's on my turf, right? So the challenging part was coming out, right? So I had this lid with 40 to 50 eggs and then I had to fend boss hog off with my feet, right? So I would one foot up just uh, kind of holding him back. But my responsibilities early on were the, uh, were the chickens. That was my first sales job, right? So I'll never forget going down to the end of this long gravel lane, And I would sell farm fresh eggs for a dollar (laughs) twenty five.
1: Was it a hard sell?
2: It wasn't bad. You know, most people knew the family. So my father was a dentist, uh, practiced for 32 years. So we knew most people in the community and it was right on the way into town. So a lot of people would stop by and, you know, it wasn't just eggs. You know, we would have cucumbers, tomatoes, peaches, strawberries. So kind of a mini mobile market at the time. But a cash business, so as a seven, eight year old kid, I would, uh, you know, I would earn a few bucks on the side.